Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. If you had to sum up life on the coronavirus roller coaster, you could argue it all comes down to a single letter. Not a word, a letter. R. Throughout the country and actually across much of the globe, particularly in Europe, most regions are flirting with an effective reproductive number of one. That's infectious disease doctor Joshua Schiffer talking about how coronavirus reproduces, which is to say it's R value. What that means is that the average person who's infected infects about one other person. And importantly, that represents a tightrope of sorts, because if we are able to get that number a little bit less than one and even substantially less than one. And examples across the globe of where that have occurred are are really most prominent in Asia and and, uh, many countries in sub-Saharan Africa. Then it really opens the door for loosening physical distancing a bit uh, and critically thinking about opening schools. Schiffer is an associate professor in the Vaccine and Infectious Disease Division at the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center in Seattle, Washington. And he argues that flirting with one is not where you want to be, though in many states, it's where we've been for months. If you're flirting with a reproductive number of one and for whatever reason, the physical distancing is relaxed a little bit or the masking, the reproductive number can go to 1.2 or 1.3. And typically what we would see after that, and this is what happened in many states over the summer, including Arizona and Texas, and and what's I think happening now, unfortunately, in many states in the Midwest, is that a a few weeks above uh, a reproductive number of one is is followed inevitably by a surge in cases, which in turn is followed by a surge in hospitalizations and death. And so it's a very dangerous place to be in the sense that even states that feel like they're doing very well, for example, in the Northeast right now, are not very far from trending towards a very dangerous situation. But, Schiffer says, there's a silver lining. If the curve starts to look scary when an infected person spreads their infection to an average of 1.1 or 1.2 people, it may not take much to get that number down to just below one, meaning each person with coronavirus would infect, on average, 0.8 or 0.9 people. Schiffer himself has done a lot of work on another virus, HIV, which has now been studied for about 40 years. And he's very careful and exact about how he treats HIV patients. Literally, before we start treating people in our clinic, we have information on their virus, which tells us exactly which drugs are most likely to use uh, to be effective. And and we often select our agents based on on that information. And so it's literally a perfect assessment of whether the therapy is likely to work. The instinct of a doctor, he says, is to get it right. But this new coronavirus, SARS-CoV-2, is not something we've studied for 40 years. And both our knowledge and our tools are imperfect. And so that instinct that we have in the clinic and that we've grown accustomed to in the clinic might be counterproductive when trying to deal with this as quickly as possible. Over the past several months, Schiffer has begun to shift in his thinking about how to address the situation we see in front of us. His lab looks at all different sorts of infectious diseases, from the common cold to herpes, and as he's watched the emergence of this brand new virus and the havoc that it's caused, 
he started to realize a toolkit of suboptimal tools, which is basically what we have, that may be just what we need. His essay in the New York Times laying out his argument is entitled, Against COVID-19, Imperfect Measures Do the Most Good. And remember, it's all about R, the reproductive number. The R, or the R naught, as it's sometimes called, it has to be less than one. Less than one person infecting one other person. I think that many of the countries that have done exceedingly well, and again, I really focused on East Asia and Africa because they're, and New Zealand and Australia as well, have come up with strategies to get well below one so that the, the number is really in the neighborhood of 0.6 to 0.8. Some of those countries have been very aware that so-called super spreader events are to blame for much of the spread, and they have worked hard to stop such events from occurring. In our view, it really coincides with the intersection of two things. The first is that this person has to be shedding at a very high viral load. And that high viral load, unfortunately, usually coincides with when the person is yet to develop symptoms. So you can imagine somebody who's maybe been infected for three or four days, doesn't feel sick yet, is shedding at a very high viral load. Uh That's the first criteria. The second criteria is that they happen to enter a place where they can make a lot of exposure contacts and potentially transmit the virus to other people. And what's really important about that is that People who are, I would say, I don't like referring to people as super spreaders because I think it's a bit accusatorial. And Mm. I really think of these as events. uh, And there are a lot of people who could potentially have initiated super spreader events who didn't, maybe because they showed up in a crowded environment 12 hours after their peak viral load. Okay. But if you think of people who are in these scenarios, so say essential workers in meatpacking plants or in prisons or in skilled nursing facilities, I think of those people as fantastic targets for interventions. Because if you can prevent those big events, it has an overall effect on the total R not, and again gets gets us in the situation where we're on the safe side of this tipping point rather than the dangerous side. So talk to me a little bit about this because We focus on this issue of like the safe side of one, right? Well, we saw Europe in many ways like crush the virus. But we've seen in the last few weeks, cases have exploded in places like France. So much so that uh, the last I looked per capita, they have more cases than the U.S. And we thought, wow, we're terrible compared to Europe over the summer. But then just I'm interested in contrasting that with Asia because um, I know people who have like cousins in Taiwan and stuff. And they were like, you know, most of the spring, a lot of the summer, kids were in school. I mean, things, you know, we really, really shut down here. That didn't happen in a lot of places in Asia. Now, they don't have some secret vaccine. What's going on? Yeah. uh, So. There, uh, I'd like to make a couple of points in response to that. The sure. first is that sort of within Europe and, and North America, there were these subtle differences. So Arizona, Texas, and Florida had really tough summers, whereas the Pacific Northwest and New England fared pretty well. And I would attribute that to very, very slight differences in behavior averaged across the population. So I would venture a guess that if you had visited 
Texas or Arizona in the middle of the summer and then flown to Boston or New York or Seattle, it would have been very hard to just visualize differences in behavior. Okay. You know, that Interesting. It's really, really subtle. And these very subtle changes can, you know, when you're dealing with a situation where you're either having exponential growth or you're not, these very subtle changes can make a difference. And those differences could be the percent of people wearing masks. It could be just slight choices that on average people are making. So you can imagine 10% of the population saying, you know what, I'm going to get takeout rather than going to a restaurant or just slightly better procedural work at in crowded work environments that, that could make that difference. And so the situation within Europe and uh, North America, I think, points to the danger of being in this neighborhood of one that very small policy changes mm. or differences in behavior can really tip the situation one way or the other. Okay. I think Asia is very different. And what's fascinating about Asia, and I really think it's important to talk about sub-Saharan Africa, is that okay. e each country sort of had its own recipe for success. So Korea and Taiwan and Vietnam uh, and China have just been extremely aggressive about testing and contact tracing, you know, perhaps at levels that would be unacceptable in the U.S. in, in terms of limitations on, on privacy. But it's obviously been, been very effective. Okay. In Japan, interestingly, there's been much less testing and there's been much more, I think, reliance on a sense of public responsibility. And so they recognized very early that crowded environments were very dangerous and they've had a very responsive population level response in terms of trying to avoid crowded environments and tight spaces and, and also just extremely high compliance with masking. Hmm. There were these projections that sub-Saharan Africa was going to be uh, hit harder than anywhere in the globe. And there have certainly been countries, particularly South Africa, that have had you know a difficult time. But Many countries in uh, Africa that are under-resourced have used the exact same formula as Japan, which is just a real reliance on people looking out for one each other and taking a sense of responsibility about this and very high levels of masking. And those countries, I think, are in a little bit of a safer buffer zone where they're well under one. And so they're not necessarily immune from super spreader events but when a super spreader event occurs, it tends to be diminished in terms of secondary spread throughout the population. Got it. It, it. You know, it's interesting. My reading of what's happened in Japan also has been that very early on, one of the things they really, really focused on was super spreader events. Like, don't let these happen to you, basically. Like, don't do them. And, and as you say... You know, they weren't big on testing, but they were like, don't have super spreader events, like realizing the power of that kind of event to ripple out. Right. And just one subtle point I'd like to make about super yeah. spreader events is I think the ones we tend to read about in the news are either in places that are well known, uh, such as the White House, mm. or they affect so many people that it's hard to ignore. So we, we had a recent fairly large super spreader event in Fraternity Row at the University of Washington. And there's been uh, fishing boat events here and uh, also uh, at a fairly well-known hotel outside of the city. 
But in reality, that what a super spreader event often means is just one person infecting five to 10 other people. Okay. And those events are far more common, but they're just as important. And it really does differentiate the virus from influenza in the sense that events that involve anywhere from five to 50 people are critical for the survival of SARS-CoV-2 in a population, whereas that type of event's actually quite rare for influenza. And so it's not just these huge events, but it's the sort of small to moderate super spreader events that are also critically important. So one of the big differences from the flu you're saying is that you can get it so much more easily, like so many more people get infected, basically. Kind of. What, what's really amazing, and we've, we've written about this, and I, I don't think we have all of the answers, is that the conclusion we came to was that imagine a situation where you have the complete setup for a super spreader event. Okay. So you have somebody with a SARS-CoV-2 infection with a very high viral load enter a crowded, poorly ventilated room where nobody's wearing a mask. Okay. And then at the same time, you have somebody with influenza with a very high viral load enter the room. The, the difference is that the person with super spreader potential with SARS-CoV-2 might infect three quarters of the people in the room, whereas the person with influenza won't. They'll only infect two or three others. Wow. But on the other hand, okay. the average person infected with influenza is much more likely to infect at least one other person than the average person with SARS-CoV-2. So there have been some very hmm. elegant studies out of Hong Kong and Japan and, and Israel showing that about 80% of people who get infected with SARS-CoV-2 don't infect anybody. So there, there is this real heterogeneity between people who are infected. And I don't think we really understand still why that is the case. And the secondary attack rate in households is also lower than for influenza. So there's real differences in the biology between the two viruses that I, I don't think are totally understood yet. It's it, That's an interesting point, because I think in the public imagination, the notion that you would have somebody in a family who wouldn't infect every other person in their family, I mean, I think they would think with COVID that's inconceivable. But what you're saying is, no, it, it's conceivable Yeah, that you could have somebody in a family, right, who has it and they don't infect everybody else. Right. And I think the other thing that is extremely hard for the public to get their head around, I mean, it actually took me three months of studying this and reading about it for me to totally buy into this concept and get it, is that the first person who develops symptoms in the household is usually the first person who got infected, but not always. And so the incubation period of the virus is really, really variable. Okay. So there's some people who develop symptoms within a couple of days after getting infected. That's relatively uncommon. And then there are some people who develop symptoms 10 days after getting infected, and then a lot of people in between. Mm. So sometimes you can't even tell in these large super spreader events who the index case was. And again, most of the transmission occurs when the transmitter has yet to develop symptoms. So it is really difficult sometimes to follow the ball in terms of understanding who's infecting who within these events. Can you tell me, I'm sure you've been paying very close attention to SARS-CoV-2 since like February or January or March or something. Can you tell me in the last six or eight months, what have you learned about this virus that has surprised you? Yeah, I think the thing that has been 
I don't know if surprise is the right word, but the thing I have found so interesting is the the clear differences that are cultural and political that sort of dictate different countries' successes to the response and how that hmm. overlaps so much with the biology of the virus. You know, it's it's very telling that the libertarian tendencies here have not helped. <laughs> and yeah. I'm not trying to criticize one, you know, political mm-hmm. chain of thought mm-hmm. versus another, but it's just clearly the case that it's a situation where everybody needs to be on board with taking these preventative measures, masking being the most prominent. And then a country like Japan can get away with under-testing. I mean, I was terrified about Nigeria, for example, just a crowded, chaotic place with very poor health healthcare infrastructure. And the fact that they've had relatively low numbers of, of cases and deaths per capita is really telling about how the, the sort of cultural components of accounting for super spreader events and realizing that by implementing these measures, often you're not doing them to protect yourself as much as you are to protect your community. Well, I was going to say, and in a place like Nigeria, you simply think that's an issue of people aren't on the same page. Like, obviously, in America, we have this ethos of I'm an individual and sort of part of being in America, I'll decide for myself. But this success in Nigeria, kind of like in Japan, uh, you think it's people saying, here's what you need to do, and almost everybody falls in line. Yeah, I mean, it must be. I I must confess I've never been there. I do. So I have friends in Vietnam, and Vietnam's a country I've traveled extensively to. And at the beginning of the pandemic, Vietnam just made it an issue that they were going to try to have zero deaths. And they they maintained that for a very long time. And essentially, people who got infected in that country, their names were listed in the newspaper, and they were actually had no problem with that. They were fine with it because they wanted to be part of the solution. As in China, every single person who got infected was taken from their home and put in quarantine where they Mm. were fed and taken Mm -hmm. care of. In the case of China, they were often enrolled in clinical trials. And this was sort of a sense of national pride associated Mm. with this. And it clearly worked. And I'm by no means saying that that's a plausible or, you know, even the right system for the United States. But it's so fascinating that this virus has really just put a magnifying glass over each country and (laughs) at a very essential level said, here's who you are. And here's your degree of readiness to deal with something complicated. And it's been, I think, one of the very early inspirational things for the piece in the New York Times was seeing this and seeing that there wasn't necessarily a tight correlation between how well-resourced a country was mm-hmm. in terms of its healthcare and, and how well they were doing with the virus. And that that stimulated the idea that there's a number of different ways to attack this and, and to achieve success. And very few of them are going to involve just a perfect solution that is foolproof just by itself. I'm Kara Miller talking with Dr. Joshua Schiffer. He's an associate professor in the Vaccine and Infectious Disease Division at the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center in Seattle, Washington. We will link to his New York Times essay about the notion that the best way to fight coronavirus is with a whole bunch of imperfect tools, which together could make an enormous difference in getting back to life as we know it, kind of. That's all at innovationhub.org. We're going to be right back with Dr. Schiffer from GBH Radio and PRX. I'm Kara Miller. This is Innovation Hub. Back in a minute. 
Welcome back to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. In the toolkit against coronavirus, we don't have a lot of silver bullets. No great vaccine, no amazing treatment, but the imperfect tools that we have may actually be just what we need to regain some sense of normalcy, according to infectious disease specialist Joshua Schiffer. In a past life and hopefully a future life, I was a sexually transmitted disease researcher. And so my baseline for a barrier method for protection is the condom, which is really very effective. It's it's not quite 100 percent. And masks clearly are not that good. But, says Schiffer, who works in the Vaccine and Infectious Disease Division of the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center in Seattle, masks are crucial. They're part of that flawed toolkit that, when assembled, is now good enough to enable us to crush, if not eliminate, this virus. In a recent essay in The New York Times, he writes, We can't get tripped up by letting the perfect be the enemy of the good. And masks are a great example of that. There are a couple of things that make the mask interesting. The first is that it's not just the exposed person who's wearing the mask, it's the transmitter who could Mm. potentially be wearing the mask. And because ideally everybody would be wearing a mask all day long, the mask has this advantage that you're capturing the pre-symptomatic period when people are shedding at a high viral load. In contrast, we've thought a lot about antiviral therapy. And the reason we have is that for HIV, there's this concept called treatment as prevention, whereby if you treat somebody with HIV with an antiviral, once you've diagnosed them and and it's effective treatment, that person is very unlikely to infect another human being, which is fantastic. But for SARS-CoV-2, the treatment is not as effective potentially because you'd only be capturing people after they're symptomatic And by that point, their contagiousness is much lower than it was a couple of days beforehand. Okay, so waiting till they're sick is not really a solution to slowing the spread. No, I mean, it's obviously a great thing to potentially treat people and and decrease their likelihood of developing severe illness. But the mask bypasses that problem because the person uh, who's a quote unquote transmitter uh, doesn't potentially know they're a transmitter, but that's fine because they're wearing a mask. Mm. And if you think of the mask then as a filter, and a very imperfect filter, but if the virus is getting filtered not once but twice between the transmitter and the exposed person, then the amount of virus that the exposed person comes into contact with is less. And there are two downstream effects of that. The first is that they're less likely to become infected in the first place. But the second potential effect is that if they do become infected, there's likely to be what we call an exposure dose response relationship between the amount of virus and the severity of illness. Got it. That hasn't been proven yet for SARS-CoV-2. It it hasn't been proven in humans and it has not been proven yet in an animal model either, but it has been established in animal models for MERS, which is a close cousin of SARS-CoV-2. And there's pretty suggestive data for sars the original SARS from these brilliant studies done in the Amoy Gardens complex that the closer that people live to the uh, index case, the more likely they were to become infected and the more likely they were to have a higher viral load and more severe infection. Hmm. So I think it's a pretty safe assumption, and I'm looking forward to it being empirically proven, that 
the dose of the exposure has some bearing on how sick people become. So then you have a situation where the masks are lowering the likelihood of infection and lowering the likelihood that upon infection, people will become sick. And the final piece of it is something that we, in infectious diseases research, we call indirect effects, which is that if enough people are wearing masks and the amount of circulating virus goes down, it starts to act a little bit like a vaccine in the sense that the people who are not wearing masks are less likely to become infected just because they're getting, have a lower likelihood of getting exposed to somebody who's infected in the first place because the masks are having this effect at the population level. Hmm. And so it's kind of a brilliant thing that's such a primitive and only partially effective technique, if right. it's applied across the population, has very powerful effects. And, and what we find in our models and other people have found is that particularly because we're at this tipping point, that if you were to go from about 60% usage, which is where we are now, Okay. and increase it to maybe 80%, it really goes from being at an effective reproductive number of one to about 0.6. Whoa, which is, yeah. that's huge. Right. So I can't tell you if that's what's happening in Japan. There's so mm -hmm. many other variables. Mm -hmm. But I have my, you know, <laughs> I, I can't help but wonder if that's the only difference that's allowing them to tread water more comfortably than we are while we wait for a vaccine. So that is one imperfect but but effective uh, tool in the toolbox. You also talk about testing and um, the, the sort of place maybe in our arsenal for inexpensive tests um, that aren't super duper accurate. Uh, but can be used, which I think people would think, well, why Why would you take a test that's not as accurate as it possibly can be? What's the role for fast but not super accurate tests? Right. So I think the first thing that really the, a, a number of people had argued for this, and I was lukewarm about it. But when I started to hear these more than anecdotes, just consistent stories coming out of Arizona and other states that people are getting tested and weren't getting their results until five days later, that's the equivalent of not getting tested. Right. Uh, because by that point, you can't alter the transmission chain. You can't do contact tracing. You're not really even affecting whether that person is going to self-isolate or not. And so, you know, the most sophisticated PCR tests were taking too long to turn around. And so the first problem was that the, the standard that we were using wasn't achieving very much, and at mm -hmm. least in some locations throughout the country. Mm -hmm. The theoretical advantage of using quicker tests, the first thing is the, the rapid turnaround, and so that it becomes actionable. But there's actually a couple of counterintuitive things that are potentially helpful as well. And that is that the, the PCR tests, one of the interesting features about SARS-CoV-2 is that people appear to shed the virus for weeks and sometimes even months Whoa. after they get infected as measured with a PCR. Now, I should say PCR is the gold standard. It's like when you yeah. saw people in the lines in Florida over the summer for eight hours, that's what they were waiting to get, a PCR test. That's right. Okay. And so the PCR is much more sensitive and it detects any bit of viral RNA that's left. And so a lot of us have wondered when we're getting positive tests three weeks into infection, mm. 
with with notable exceptions, I think that that we feel like the likelihood that this person is contagious is very low. There's a little bit of a debate about whether we're just detecting remnants of dead cells that contain a little bit of virus or whether the virus is still replicating just a tiny bit in a tiny number of cells. But in any case, it's very unlikely that this person remains contagious. And so one of the problems is, is that if you apply the test across the board, even if you have a rapid turnaround and the period of contagion is really limited to the first three or four days of infection, a majority of the positive tests that will return are going to be after that phase of infection. And so you'll be capturing a lot of people who are are no longer contagious. The tests that are less sensitive are, you know, they'll miss a lot of these low-level virus detections later in infection, but they are more specific for high levels of virus. And so when those tests come back positive, you're pretty sure that the person remains contagious to other people. So they're more likely to get the people who are just out there shedding a whole bunch of virus. They'll get those people. Right. Okay. Uh, And so at some level, it gives you a more practical result. One of the ideas I've seen floated, which makes a lot of sense to me, is to use a test that's called an orthogonal test, which is you, you use a separate protein test, but that test looks for a completely different protein so that the likelihood that you would get two false positives is very low. Huh. Okay. Uh, and so I think there's still some technical issues to be worked out, but uh, to me, it makes a lot of sense. A critical thing to keep in mind, and it applies equally to masks, is that this strategy will fail on certain occasions. And it will be very easy to point at these failures mm-hmm. and draw the conclusion that the strategy is not working. So I think the perfect example right now is the NFL. So I'm pretty familiar with the strategy they're using, which is very frequent use of of tests. And they still had a substantial outbreak on the Tennessee Titans. And, you know, it seems like maybe some of the players weren't adhering to physical distancing. And so that captures a couple of things. First of all, that the strategy does not work by itself, which is the exact same thing as masks. I mean, masks are not going to be the savior without some degree of physical distancing and without some degree of implementation of good testing. But in addition, uh, what it captures is that just because you have a failure, you always need to consider the counterfactual. And the counterfactual is that had these algorithms not been in place, there probably would have been more teams affected with more players. And it's the same thing with masks, actually, in the sense that Actually, as the percentage of people in the population who wear masks go up, even though the total number of cases goes down, the percentage of people who were infected despite wearing a mask actually goes up. Mm -hmm. And so the number of people who can come forward and say, I was wearing a mask, my wife was wearing a mask, Mm -hmm. and I got infected, Mm -hmm. so masks don't work, uh, the, the anecdotes can really, really take us down the wrong path with all of this because there's always a counterfactual that is says, yes, uh, you did have a super spreader event despite testing or despite masks, but had those not been in place, it would have been worse. Right. And, and it sounds like 
you're not kind of advocating 100% solutions. It's more like instead of going from on to off, it's like the dimmer switch is, is like it's like we're going to just take this virus down, you know, not to nothing, but down. Exactly. And the more dimmer switches you have, yeah, uh, yeah. I, I've, the darker there was a, it can get. <laughs> right. And there was a really nice uh, analogy, the Swiss cheese analogy, where essentially each of these strategies has holes. But if you apply all of them, that fewer infections break through. Hmm. I'm Kara Miller. I'm talking with Joshua Schiffer. He's an infectious disease doctor at the University of Washington's Department of Medicine. We're going to take our last pause right here. When we come back and look at what Dr. Schiffer believes are some of the most promising treatments for COVID right now, and why those treatments, even without a vaccine, could change the trajectory of the pandemic. You can find out more about Dr. Schiffer's work and his argument for the power of an imperfect toolkit on our website, innovationhub.org. From GBH Radio and PRX, this is Innovation Hub. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. On Friday, October 2nd, President Trump, who had contracted the coronavirus, traveled to Walter Reed Medical Center in Bethesda, Maryland. But even before he went, he was given antivirals, which have generally been given to fairly sick patients. On CNBC, former FDA Commissioner Scott Gottlieb was asked whether the president's use of antivirals might not tell us something about the severity of his disease. I don't think so. I mean, I I think that the reality is that the president has early COVID disease and it was prudent and smart to give the president one of the available therapies that we know have made a difference um, in outcomes in this disease. Antivirals, Gottlieb noted, have generally been given to much sicker people much later in their course of treatment. After all, they're still being studied, Supplies are relatively low. But there's every reason to believe that a drug that's going to be effective in more advanced cases, given the mechanism of these drugs, that using it earlier in the course of the disease can be even more effective. Dr. Joshua Schiffer, an infectious disease specialist at the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center in Seattle, Washington, argues the antivirals we've already developed may be key in helping us return to a more normal life something that's a lot closer to our 2019 reality than we're living right now. Yes, they've helped people with serious cases of COVID, which is great, but... When people are that sick, it really is very hard to turn around the ship. And there's a statistic we use in the hospital, which is something called the number needed to treat. And so what that represents is how many people do you need to treat with remdesivir to save one life? And in the later stages of infection, the number appears to be 20 or greater. Which means that for every 20 people you treat, you save one life. Schiffer says, echoing Gottlieb here, that we might be far more successful if we administered antivirals to people who are less sick. Folks potentially who are not even in the hospital yet. And who might never have to go to the hospital if they could get access to antivirals. Indeed, Schiffer believes, and he's written about this in a New York Times essay, we are fast assembling a toolkit to treat COVID. 
Perhaps not so much that it disappears, but enough that many of the aspects of our lives that we miss that have caused so many job losses that our kids desperately need back, those can resume. Now, we can wait for a silver bullet, or we can go to work with an imperfect toolkit that might turn out to be remarkably effective. A toolkit that includes imperfect masks, rapid testing with fairly high accuracy, but not the highest, and antivirals, which were given to the president and are often reserved for the worst cases. But what we've learned in infectious diseases over the years for many infections, including HIV, including Ebola, including zoster, including genital herpes, is that early treatment is often more successful. And it's actually quite intuitive. It's the, the analogy that uh, I used in the essay is that of a forest fire, just because that's a ubiquitous problem in our neck of the woods these days. Yeah, yeah. And you can just imagine in our state, how difficult it was to fight 12 ongoing huge fires in different Mm -hmm. parts of the state, whereas fighting one very well-localized fire, which is what infection always starts as, is much easier. And so one of the points we're making is that we think that the number needed to treat in terms of preventing deaths would be much lower if you could capture people early, capture them at home, Uh, and and treat them before they need to go to the hospital. And there's a window to do that with this particular infection. Most people feel sick for at least four to five days before requiring going to the hospital. And so there was this feeling that we're missing that opportunity. And the other real advantage of that approach is that death is not the only endpoint that matters. There in my opinion, two other endpoints that matter. The the first is hospitalization rate Mm -hmm. because we were relatively spared out here compared to to New York and other cities, but it was horrible to be in the hospital. It was working there and not having families be able to visit their relatives in the hospital, Mm -hmm. whether they had COVID or not, clearly seeing other aspects of medical care held up. Mm Mm-hmm. And, you know, and just seeing my colleagues in in New York, uh, who I'm not sure will ever be the same after what they had to go through. So preventing hospitalization is a huge deal. And the final piece of this is that there's this issue of long haulers and people who feel unwell for a long period of time. And Mm -hmm. our hope would be that initiating antiviral therapy early would really severely limit the likelihood that that happens. So is that on the horizon? I mean, I did think that antivirals were given when you were very sick. Um, And I think there's a lot of people who have been waiting for, you know, that thing that you take when you feel sick, but you're not so sick that you actually have to go to the hospital. And maybe it stops you from ever going to the hospital. Um, It's not just doctors uh, who have been waiting for that. It's ordinary people. Yes. So it is. I This has, I think, been one of the absolute unrecognized failures of our response to the pandemic is how slowly this has occurred. You might recall in the early days of the pandemic, people were getting prescribed hydroxychloroquine left and right. Mm-hmm. And my criticism was not with the drug. The drug needed to be tested. It was the fact that those people should have been enrolled in clinical trials. Nobody should be receiving a drug with unproven benefits 
And just the amount that we could have learned if for every person who got prescribed hydroxychloroquine, if they had been enrolled in a study where we actually learned something rather than anecdotes, which are not helpful. And there's an angle to potentially make the trials more efficient and get them done more quickly so that the drugs can be scaled up much more quickly and so that we can be in a situation in two months while we're waiting for a vaccine that we can actually treat a much higher percentage of people in the general population. I was going to ask you about that. Do you see the way things are going now, these drugs being available in a couple of months or no, this is like six months, a year or whatever? The neutralizing antibodies have shown great promise, but they're given intravenously. And so whether we can scale that intervention up yes. so that it's available in clinics across the country and not just in cities like Boston and Seattle, mm. but in smaller cities and smaller towns is an interesting question. It's not so easy to capture people in the early days when they're sick. We've learned that. This pandemic has unfortunately disproportionately affected people of color. It's disproportionately affected people of lower socioeconomic status. And it's now hitting rural areas very hard. Mm -hmm. So these are traditionally not the easiest populations to access for, for various reasons. And so it will require a Herculean effort to make an IV drug available. One question about like a final sort of piece of your uh, the toolkit, like the imperfect toolkit to kind of dial back the number of um, infections. One of the things you talked about is a vaccine. And and a lot of people, I think, think like who would want a 50 percent effective vaccine? Um what role could a vaccine, even if it's only 50% effective, what role could it play in ending the place we're in with the pandemic? Right. So like everybody else, my hope is, you know, it would just be fantastic if one of these four products or two or more of these products ends up showing efficacy of 90% and protects the person who gets it forever and so there, it, I think it's in the realm of the possible that we actually do get a vaccine that is highly protective at the individual level okay. and that the protection is of a reasonably long duration and that in and of itself would get us into a much safer place. I'm not going to say the end of the pandemic, but mm -hmm. into a place where we can relax physical distancing and get back to a life that approximates our old life. But I, I don't think it's safe to assume that will happen. And so the question is, what happens if we get a vaccine that only protects, as you say, 50% of people or right. even 30% of people? So it's, it's possible that I might receive a vaccine. I get exposed to SARS-CoV-2. I generate an enormous amount of antibodies, and those antibodies mop up the virus before it ever gets past my windpipe. It, it doesn't infect any cells in my body. I'm completely protected. Okay. But what could also happen would be that I'm partially protected, that I do get infected, that I end up shedding at a much lower viral load. Maybe mm. I develop mild symptoms. Maybe I don't develop symptoms at all. But as a result, I'm never contagious to anybody. And so I'm captured in the vaccine study as a vaccine failure because I developed symptoms and a documented infection. But in reality, I represent the end of the branch of transmission. There's hmm. no way I'm going to infect anybody. And if you model that effect in the population, it's extremely powerful. 
as powerful as directly protecting somebody. Hmm. And so one of the points I think is that it's critical to try to evaluate that particular component of vaccine protection in clinical trials. So we've talked about this kind of imperfect toolkit of like masks aren't perfect and maybe the vaccine is not perfect and maybe the you know medication that you take when you get a little sick isn't perfect, but you put all these things together and you're really able to just dial back on the severity of the pandemic. I wonder when you look at deaths, maybe hospitalizations in the last six, seven, eight months in this country, do you think we've already made some progress Obviously, many months ago, nobody was wearing masks. I mean, there are treatments already that that are nobody was given to anybody six months ago that they are now. Are we pushing towards that tipping point? Has anything changed? Yeah, I think that we've done a remarkable job of just managing our lives to the point in terms of prevention where the reproductive number is around one. Okay. It's not good enough because the number of deaths is still in the hundreds per day across the country, but it at some level is, is still an achievement. In terms of the mortality rate, it's interesting in that I've seen our local data, and I think this is reflected in many parts of the world, that the mortality rate among people who are infected appears to be lower. I'm not yet clear whether this represents a reliable trend, and if okay. so, why it would be occurring. Okay. There, one of the things that's been well documented is that the age of people getting infected is much lower. Mm-hmm. But even when that is controlled for, the mortality rate is lower. And I certainly can't help but wonder about masks and the inoculum effect that I mentioned and whether people are on average getting exposed to a smaller amount of virus when they get infected. But that is extremely difficult to prove. Hmm. Uh, So maybe they're getting some virus, but just not quite enough to make them as sick as they might have been if nobody was wearing masks at all. Yes. I mean, I find that to be an extremely attractive hypothesis. And in my heart, I sort of believe it's true, but it has not been proven. And I'm not totally sure how to prove it. It, it's very difficult because there's so many factors involved. And there, there's even a possibility that there there is sometimes a tendency for viruses and hosts to co-accommodate. And generally speaking, viruses will become less pathogenic over time, meaning that they make people less sick. But it's very early to make that call. And I haven't seen any evidence to suggest that. But it's just to point out that there are a lot of possible explanations for why this might be happening. A final question for you. Um, uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci has said that he thinks coronavirus may be with us potentially forever because it's very contagious. Um, And, you know, you've talked about like, oh, well, let's reduce this risk by 30 percent and this by 30. You know, like we do these different things. But if somebody's fearful and you say, well, that's okay, I'm going to reduce your risk by 60 percent. It's hard to be 60% less fearful. Like, I don't even know, you know, it's hard to kind of have that yeah. discussion. Or how, what does that even look like or mean? Um, how, how do you think about that in terms of, well, if you can reduce risk but not take it to zero, where are we? Or, or where does this go? Yeah, I am so sympathetic to that question because I... I what I have found in my life is that when I get asked very broad, excellent questions like the ones you're asking, I can answer them easily. 
But when people call me and say, can my kid play competitive sports now? I can't, it's so difficult to answer the minutia of day-to-day life about how to manage this. I agree very much with Dr. Fauci that this will be with us for two to three years. I don't think it will have the impact on our lives that it's having now in two to three years. I think the likelihood that we will have better management for this, that enough people will be vaccinated, that people who get infected tend to have less severe infection. I think the probability that that occurs is very high. But where I think we need to keep our guard up is that this is definitely going to happen again. Uh, Mm. It's already happened multiple times in the last decade uh, with with close calls. And so we obviously have to do better next time. In all of the things I've spoken about, we need to be up and running within a month. We need to be enrolling 50% of people who are infected into clinical trials. We need to not send mixed messages about masks ever again for a respiratory virus infection. We need to have testing strategies which account for viruses that have slightly different properties, maybe less super spreading potential, maybe more super spreading potential. There's really an opportunity to make the next pandemic, which will happen at some point, a much more manageable affair. Joshua Schiffer is an associate professor in the Vaccine and Infectious Disease Division at the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Center in Seattle, Washington. Dr. Schiffer, thank you so much for being here. It was such a pleasure. Thanks so much. We will have Dr. Schiffer's writing about the Imperfect Toolkit on our website. And we'll also have some hopeful looks at why experts believe we may be turning the corner on this pandemic. That's all at innovationhub.org. Thanks to the people who helped put together this show. Senior producer Elizabeth Ross, producer Mark Sollinger, associate producer Sarah Leeson, and engineer David Goodman. We also had production help from Caitlin Falds. From PRX and GBH, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub.